Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the New Books and Genocide Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host today, Jeff Bachman, a senior lecturer at the American University School of International Service and a Genocide Studies scholar. Thank you all for listening. Today, I will be talking to Alex Alvarez about Unstable Ground, Climate Change, Conflict, and Genocide, published by Roman and Littlefield in 2017. Alex, welcome to the show. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks for having me and giving me a chance to talk with you about my book. Yeah, thank you. I'm looking forward to it. Uh, can you start us off by telling our listeners a little bit about yourself? Well, um, let's see. I am a professor of criminology and criminal justice at Northern Arizona University. And uh, I've been here for about 30 years. And um, most of the work that I do for a lot of um, a lot of that time has been looking at um, violence, different kinds of violence, especially collective political violence, most notably genocide. Um, yeah, not sure what else, but, uh, you know, that's the kind of work I do. No, that helps. And, uh, you know, we can maybe connect that to how you came to write this book. So I do like to ask my guests how they came to write their books. And in the, in the introduction to your book, you share a little bit about living in Flagstaff, Arizona, climate conditions and the risk of fire. Uh, so you mentioned criminology, um, but then you also have this lived experience. How do these things sort of interconnect? Does this, did that experience influence your decision to write this book? Uh, absolutely. Although I have to say there was never an aha moment, that kind of thing, where I, I connected um, this issue of climate change and violent conflict. But I think, you know, part of it was living here in the American Southwest. Um, you really do become aware of various kinds of weather and climate issues, especially um, water, uh, as a resource, water scarcity, um, the risk of fire, especially during times of drought. And you just start paying attention to some of these seasonal changes and long-term weather conditions um, that, you know, in the aggregate refer to as climate. Um, and I think in many ways, my awakening to this um, is the same as it has been for many people, just slowly starting to become more and more aware of this thing that we call climate change or global warming and slowly learning a bit more about it, slowly becoming a little more um, interested in what it means. Um, But for me, rather than focusing on, as many people tend to do, the environmental consequences of it, um, whether it's about polar bears and Arctic sea ice or these kind of things, I began thinking about it in terms of the work that I do and uh, understanding a bit more about how um, various forms of violence develop, uh, especially extreme forms of violence such as genocide and beginning to connect that with some of the conditions that climate change is increasingly um, bringing about. So it was a gradual, uh, if you will, a gradual kind of uh, awakening. Interesting. And was was there anything else that motivated you to to write this book? You know, um, I think hmm, tough question, but I th- <laughs> <laughs> but I think basically it, no, it was more just this kind. You might have of already answered it. <laughs> general Sorry. awareness, um, and part of it is also that um, as a genocide scholar, I've always wanted to. Um, I don't want to treat it just as history. And one of the things I see with um, studying genocide is that we often only focus on past cases, right? So an exercise in historical analysis. Um, And I wanted to see if we can apply what we've learned about how genocide and other forms of violence develop, how they come about, what kind of conditions facilitate the development of what we can call that genocidal impulse the desire to wipe out um, an entire group of people um, and connected to the here and the now, right? Um, That's kind of in part what was motivating me in 
um, this whole process. Thank you, Alex. And um, you know, before we get really into into the substance, I I found it interesting the the writing style that you used for the book. Um, for me, it was clear when reading it that it was written in a way that makes it relevant and accessible to academic audiences, but also general audiences. In fact, as I was noted to you in, a, in an email, you know, in our um, our correspondence, your book is one that I'll consider using in my upcoming courses, yet I can also recommend it to a friend outside of academia. If my reading of your book as a sort of hybrid is accurate, did you make a deliberate decision to write the book in this way? Absolutely. Um, I have to say, you know, um, for many years, I've been uh, writing a lot of articles, book chapters, those kind of things, but the focus has been primarily for other scholars. And I wanted to start reaching a broader audience. I, I, I think these issues that I write about are important, they're relevant, um, uh, and I wanted to make sure that uh, people who don't have an academic background, who aren't scholars themselves, could pick up the book and could read it and understand it. And um, so it really, I've noticed in my own writing over the years with a few of my book projects that increasingly they are um, this hybrid of being informed by the scholarship, being informed by the research I do, but yet written in a way that is not too jargony, too technical, that is for a broad, uh, wide audience. And so, yeah, absolutely. It was a very um, conscious choice I made in terms of the writing style. And I'm pleased that you picked up on that because, you know, it's a real struggle trying to balance those two things. It is. Uh, yes, it, I, definitely something, um, especially when you're supposed to be writing for a scholarly audience, then um, oftentimes you incorporate, I guess you could say the jargon, um, which could, then can uh, eliminate other audiences from being able to read it. Plus, of course, we can get into all the other things about access to, um, you know, to scholarly journals and such. So, um but so I'm glad you wrote this to a, to a, to a general audience, and um, but also to an academic one. I think we can all take from that. But maybe for a general audience, um, and this maybe comes up with questions about misunderstandings. Um, there seems to be at times confusion about what is climate and what is weather, and when there's certain weather, that's evidence that we're not experiencing climate change. So, um, can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Yeah. You know, one of the things, um, first off, let me just say, I'm not a climate change scientist. You know, I'm not someone who is necessarily an expert um, in all of the mechanisms that um, go into uh, creating um, a climate uh, system. But, you know, as I began reading um, and studying this issue, it really became clear to me that there is a lot of fundamental understanding about what is climate? And I think one of the biggest issues, and I wrote about this in the first chapter, uh, one of the biggest uh, misunderstandings is that people oftentimes confuse weather and climate. And, um, you know, the, uh, because we get a, a, a cold winter, for example, does not necessarily mean that that invalidates um, climate change, right? That, um, Weather is short term. Weather is what we experience on a daily basis. And then when we look more long term, um, that is climate. Climate is about weather over time. It's about averages. It's about general trends. And um, yet what we often find is that when people make that mistake, they often use it either knowingly or unknowingly as a way to discredit or deny uh, climate change. Right. Thank you. And, um, you know, this comes to the question about climate change denial. Um, do you think other misunderstandings or that is a larger contributor to climate change denial than maybe uh, vested interests? So those who deny it, even while they probably understand that it is happening because they have some interest in doing so. Um, I think it's a mix, honestly. It's, I don't think that, um, you know, I don't know necessarily what's behind any person's um, individual belief, but, you know, my experience in talking to different audiences, both students, community members in various places, um, has taught me that, you know, for some people, 
um, it is about not understanding um, the, the, the science. Um, for others, it is that um, their own experience tells them one situation is the way things are. And that's the way it's always been, right? Um, so they think that, um, oh, in my lifetime, I've experienced this, and that's the way it's always been or will be. So for some people, it is just kind of a, a, um, based on their own experience. I do think for others, it is very um, political or that there are vested interests in denying it in terms of um you know, fossil fuel industries, these kind of things. Um, so I think it's a mix. I, I think there are people who genuinely don't understand. And I think there are people who consciously um, work against it um, for various kinds of reasons. Mm -hmm. Well, in terms of strategies on how to respond to climate change and prevention of climate related uh, war and genocide, um, do how people think about climate change, does that impact how we need to approach them and try to strategize? Um, so those who deny it for um, out of misunderstanding, those who deny it for vested interests, um, is, is it all the same in the end or do we have to develop different strategies depending on um, the answer to that question? Well, I, I think different strategies. I think, you know, cookie cutter approaches generally tend not to work. Um, I, it's my understanding, actually, that some very vocal voices that deny climate change um, actually behind the scenes fully acknowledge it, but see that um, it is harming them economically or, um, you know, something along those kind of lines. I think for I think, though, we are waking up to it. I think the changes that we are experiencing around us every day um, are just um too strong, too consistent for it not to be making an effect. You know, when you think about this past summer and all of the fires we experienced in the American West, in California, Oregon, and Washington, the number of people who were displaced from their homes and communities, I, I think there is, what's happening is a shift, a, a shift in awareness, a shift in recognition, and ultimately that is uh, going to play a big part in allowing us to more effectively address it. You know, when it's just an abstraction, it's easy to ignore. When it's something future oriented, um, you know, it, it's easy to put it off or to see other more daily concerns as being more important. But, you know, when people are worried about losing their homes because of fires or um, hurricanes hitting, or these kind of things that we're increasingly seeing all around the world, uh, it becomes more real. It becomes more immediate. And I think what we're seeing is a um, it is a, a shift in people's um, understanding of what climate change is about. Mm -hmm. For sure. Um, and what are some of the most likely consequences of climate change? I, you know, I had a, a colleague um, in California who didn't have to evacuate because of fires, but said their house was just covered in ashes. Um, and I just, I just can't really imagine, um, like walking out my front door and my house just being covered in ash and soot, um, from fires burning so close. Um, but, uh, anyway, what are, what are the, you know, the concept or likely consequences of climate change, uh, based on the current trajectory, um, from rising seas to population movement and beyond? Right. So th there are a lot of different kinds of changes. Uh, you know, one of the most obvious consequences of a warming world is that we are seeing um, changes in weather patterns resulting in longer and deeper droughts in different parts of the world, um, water scarcity. Uh, we're also seeing, because of that, in places like the American West, a greater risk of wildfire. Now, that's not just because of climate change, but it's certainly a contributing factor. You know, we have a lot more people living in the American West, living in that um, wilderness urban interface, um, going into places that they didn't used to be, um, and uh, essentially increasing the risk of um, fires um, impacting their homes and their communities. Uh, we're seeing an increase in hurricanes. And while any hurricane season by itself is not absolutely uh, indicative of climate change, what the evidence is suggesting is that 
a warming world will result in more frequent um, and more severe weather events, including uh, these kinds of things. In terms of what that means for people, it means a lot more um, social instability. And what I mean by that is that we're going to see a lot more people on the move who are trying to escape either direct or the indirect effects of climate change. So, for example, I think it's uh, the United Nations uh, suggests that there are about 80 million people on the move today, Um, people who've been displaced from their homes because of conflict, because of environmental degradation, et cetera. and that those numbers are expected to dramatically uh, increase as people can no longer sustain themselves because of long-term drought, because of loss of agriculture, um, these kind of things. So we are, you know, um, going to be living in a world where uh, the numbers of people who are forcibly displaced from their homes, from their communities, from their countries. Um, is going to dramatically accelerate. Um, All the estimates are suggesting this. And this poses some real questions about um, where do these people go? How do we alleviate their suffering? And what are the consequences for those um, places that those displaced populations are moving to? And keep in mind, this is not just an issue um, far away. Here in the United States, um, projections are suggesting there are going to be a lot of people on the move uh, from regions of the country where the conditions of life are such that they want to move to other parts. Um, So, you know, people moving from the southeast with heat and humidity and storms, uh, people perhaps moving from the west Um, where the threat of wildfire and long-term drought are such that they are going to move to other portions of the country that they feel will offer them a better life, um, more opportunity, um, those kind of things. Right. And can, I mean, can it be said that a, a crime has been committed or is there any criminal association that can be made between, um, you know, whether people uh, die or are displaced or uh, their homes destroyed through things connected to climate change, uh, can that be attributed to anyone as a crime? Well, you know, generally no, because the causal pattern is such that um, the linkages are very indirect. Um, You know, when someone has to leave their farm somewhere, because there's no more water or the annual monsoon rains just haven't come. And this is, by the way, already happening in different portions of the world. Um, who do you attribute that to, right? Who do, you, um, who do you assign responsibility or blame to? Legally speaking, that's, I think, a, a well-nigh impossible kind of thing uh, to do. Now, if we're talking morally, then yeah, absolutely. You know, uh, it's, it's, I think, a, a tragedy, a terrible tragedy that those regions, those nations least responsible for climate change um, appear to be bearing the brunt of it. They're the ones who are going to be most affected by it, who have the fewest resources, the least amount of resilience to cope, to adapt, to ameliorate um, these, uh, these consequences. And so at a moral level, uh, the industrialized world, um, I think there is an obligation that we have to um, do what we can to, um, you know, mitigate um, the suffering um, that is increasingly going to affect um, large numbers of people all around the world. It's a... It reminds me of a, an article. I forget the author, but there's an article called something like "Is Crime Is I'm Sorry Is Global Poverty a Crime Against Humanity?" and it sort of broke it down using the actus reus and the mens rea, the guilty act and the guilty mind, and you know, talked about. I mean, 
you know, we continue to do things that we know are having harmful effects, but actually attributing specific blame to someone legal, legally um, would be quite difficult. Um, and it sounds like something similar for climate change. And But now we can look at uh, a little bit more detail from your book, uh, how climate change might impact um, direct physical violence being perpetrated uh, between different actors. And so um, in your book, you offer readers a, a background on genocide, including genocidal processes such as othering, dehumanization and scapegoating, different types of violence, including expressive and instrumental and the genocidal impulse, which you referenced earlier. Can you give our listeners a, a brief background on genocide um, studies to frame the way you connect genocide to climate sure. change? So um, first, let me, let me say, I, I see many of these different forms of violence as being related. Um, and I think, you know, your own work, t- I would suggest, um, tells you this in terms of the connection between war and genocide. We know most genocides are perpetrated either during or in the immediate aftermath of wars. Um, but that being said, you know, genocide is about the attempt to um, eliminate a population. And um, we've seen plenty of examples throughout history where um, different governments decided to try to eliminate um, groups, whether we're talking about the Armenian genocide, the Holocaust, Cambodia, Bosnia, Rwanda, um, more recently, Darfur. Um, you know, these are all examples where uh, a population was seen as an enemy, as seen as um, a threat somehow, existential or economic or political or otherwise, and steps were taken to um, eliminate them, uh, to kill them. And uh, essentially, what I argue in this book is that the stresses and challenges of climate change um, is going to pose significant um, challenges for various communities and countries around the world. Um, And in those places where a government, for example, is unable to effectively address the needs of its citizens, where it's unable to deal with what's going on, you know, that state risks um, weakening and failing, Um, alternative nodes of power developing, whether revolutionary movements, terrorist groups, um, things along those lines. Uh, What it also means is that uh, as resources become threatened, as resources um, are increasingly um, limited, that times could get tough. And when times get tough, um, people often become much more reactive. We see um, communities become much more um, willing to support harsh or otherwise repressive measures in an effort to um, protect themselves. And so let's say, for example, we're talking about states failing, um, developing into um, zones of conflict, um, conflict being the single biggest displacer of people. Um, what we will find, I um, fear, is that in those places where those displaced people um, seek refuge, that they're going to be seen as outsiders. They're going to be seen as competing for scarce resources or um, unfairly um, taking advantage of the hospitality of those communities and that they will be vulnerable to scapegoating, to othering, um, especially if they um, come from a different ethnic, racial, religious, or otherwise um, visibly different population. And they are at risk. I think we can see um, a little bit of this kind of process at work when we look at the backlash that we have seen to population displacement in recent years around the world, where we have seen a rise in rhetoric, we've seen a rise in violence um, in the United States, in Europe, um, in other parts of the world, um, to those um, people who are... um, seeking refuge, whether as refugees or migrants um, or otherwise displaced. Yeah. And does this make any per- 
particular groups more vulnerable than others? I mean, you know, um, I mean, it could certainly include indigenous peoples, but uh, other people maybe at like uh, coastal regions who are more likely going to be displaced. Uh, are there certain groups that you see as more vulnerable than others? Yeah, um, well, I, I think, you know, it, it really depends where we're talking about, but there are certain kinds of populations that are particularly at risk. We, we do know, for example, that um, a, a large proportion of the world's population lives fairly close to uh, shorelines. You know, many of the largest cities in the world are um, in low-lying coastal regions that will be affected by rising sea levels, um, storm surges going further inland, a loss of freshwater supplies because of saltwater infusion, things like this. And when we consider, for example, that there are countries such as Bangladesh that are very low-lying um, and a, a, a very poor nation that has historically been affected by temporary flooding because of typhoons coming up the Bay of Bengal, you know, where are those people going to go and how are they going to be met? Um, you know, these are the kinds of things that um, we will increasingly see. Um, think about, for example, subsistence level farmers um, who are unable to support their, themselves and their families um, with the traditional agricultural um, methods they've employed for a long time because the wells are dry, the monsoon rains aren't coming, um, where are they going to go? Um, this is a situation that we are already seeing, for example, in the Indus River Valley, um, where the water supply there um, is increasingly being diverted for agricultural needs, um, and it's not going to small farms. Um, now, there we also have an international border that um, heightens the tension. Right. And um, I, I, I was... I wanted to jump ahead uh, just a, a sure. moment to a question that I think is related to this um, about you know the different impacts of climate change on impoverished people and, and impoverished nations as compared to wealthier people and wealthier nations. And of course, even in the in the sort of middle of that is that it impacts different people in different countries differently. Um, could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, um, essentially, you know, how well a country is able to cope with the challenges is in part a function of the extent of the uh, impacts, right? And we know there are certain places that are going to be much more severely impacted by climate change than others. Um, uh, Bangladesh being a, an example of that. But it is also a function of the resilience of a community, of a region, of a nation. And, uh, and what I mean by that is the resources that that place has in order to um, cope, to adapt, um, to be, to come up with creative solutions, um, those kind of things. And so resources in terms of um, finances, infrastructure, uh, human capital, right? Uh, a population of people who have the um the education or the training or the skill set that allows them to come up with solutions. And, and all of these different kinds of things are um, not distributed equally. And so, you know, those countries that have the fewest resources, both in terms of human, but economic, political, etc., um, they're going to be, um, they're going to have a harder time um, dealing with the consequences of climate change, it, whether it's in terms of making sure that food supplies get to the people who need it, if you've got the infrastructure to um, get food or water or medicine to those populations, uh, to relocate um, people, um, all these different kind of things. Um, yeah, and you know, one of the things I think I often find when I talk with um, people here um, in the United States or about this issue is that I think we really run the risk of wanting to think that these issues are um, foreign issues that we can safely weather it, right? That will be largely unaffected here. But even in very, you know, industrialized nations um, such as the United States with a great deal of resources, these changes are going to be a real challenge. 
you know, think about how the pandemic um, that has, you know, hit the United States, um, how much of a challenge that has been in terms of our um, medical infrastructure, right? How much it has strained our ability to deal with it, to cope with it, to um, mobilize a unified response. Now think about these kind of changes occurring year after year. Um, and over time, potentially eroding the ability of any particular place to um, to cope with it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know. Um, you know, I live in Montgomery County, Maryland, and uh, the most recent thing I read was that our hospitals are at eighty percent capacity, um, and there's just more cases every day. And of course, those who are are paying attention. Uh, I think I read more than 90,000 um, COVID-19 patients now in hospitals and the, and the strain it's putting on uh, you know, our medical resources is uh, probably something that couldn't have been imagined. Um, and, you know, I don't know if, uh, you know, this really directly connects to my next question, but I, I think it's related. Um, you know, there's benefits of urbanization, I think, concentrating people in smaller spaces. Um, but from your book, it also sounds like urbanization, if I'm reading this correctly, might also make us uh, potentially more vulnerable and less resilient. Is that, uh, is that an accurate reading? Well, I guess what I, 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 I'm, I'm getting at it in regards to that is, yeah, you're right. Um, so in some ways, you know, we have a lot of resources here in the United States. Um, we have the infrastructure, although, as I've indicated, you know, this pandemic, for example, has really strained us. Or think about um, Hurricane Katrina or any of the hurricanes and how difficult it's been to react to some of those. Um, when Sandy hit the East Coast of the United States, um, the hurricane that hit um, Houston um, or Puerto Rico, you know, these really, if you followed what was going on and how long it took to get basic supplies, power back, all these different kind of things, you realize you know, even with a lot of resources, these things are are, are, are challenging. Um, but here we also have to understand that highly industrialized urban societies, these technological societies such as us, uh, are, are, are very um, closely interconnected. And, and what I mean by that is that our, our ability to provide medical care for people is dependent in large part upon our infrastructure system. It's a, a, about um, power, the power system and how that helps provide the power needed to run modern medicine. You know, everything is tightly connected. And what we, what we know is that it's like a watch, you know, with all of these gears working together. And when everything's working together well, the watch runs. But if you take out one of those pieces or if a piece breaks, the whole system shuts down because it's all tightly tied in together. And that's kind of what I was suggesting is that, um, you know, resiliency only gets you so far and that uh, modern urban societies depend upon the functioning of different pieces of the watch in pretty far flung places. Think about how in the early days of the pandemic, you know, people um, wanting toilet paper or sanitizer or PPEs, you know, how difficult it was to meet the demands um, and that there were shortages or think about some of the meatpacking plants um, that had outbreaks and shut down. And then um, people across the country are unable to get some of the meat supplies that they want. That in a microcosm is kind of what I'm getting at. Thank you, Alex. Thanks for the, the explanation there. Um, Did that make sense? I want to... <laughs> It did. It did. Absolutely. All right. uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, I didn't mean to in, in, imply at all that you were saying something more than that. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I wanted to, to come back to, to violent conflict a little more um, as you discussed in your book. And, um, you know, in your chapter on the origins of violent conflict, you wrote, quote, despite such a distinction, genocide is closely connected with other forms of collective violence, especially warfare. In much the same way that war can be understood as a somewhat rational strategy intended to achieve some objective, so too does genocide represent a, con a conscious and intentional means to some end. I took note of this discussion of war and genocide because I recently published an article with Journal of Genocide Research titled Four Schools of Thought on the Relationship Between War and Genocide. Unfortunately, I had not read your book before writing the article. If climate change 
conflict-related conflict leads to mass killing and other violence, will war and genocide be easily distinguished? And perhaps a question related to the use of the broader categorization of mass atrocities, does it matter what the most appropriate label is? Um, great question. Um, so one of the things I would say is um, I'm not suggesting that climate change will directly cause uh, genocide, but rather that it will create conditions conducive to, uh, for example, the development of different kinds of violence and conflict. And so, for example, the most common type of war today around the world are civil wars. And very often they have an ethnic um, or racial or or some kind of um, overt dimension to them. And, And what I'm suggesting is that in those kinds of situations where you have um, tensions um, arising out of uh, the stresses and challenges coming from um, climate change, that we may well see, and it's more likely that we'll see, you know, things like civil wars develop. When those kind of things develop, war makes genocide much more likely. War brutalizes, war desensitizes, war becomes a, a, a war are struggles um, over survival, um, especially when they are seen as um, revolving around very deep-seated existential questions of identity, of belonging, of community, of, of nationhood. And um, so what I'm suggesting is that Uh, those societies that are unable to um, cope, they run the risk of devolving into whether sporadic and spontaneous forms of violence um, or into things like um, civil um, wars. And those wars can easily morph into something a bit more radical, more extreme, that thing we call genocide. Um, Think about how... um, uh, we've seen this uh, conflict going on in Syria um, for a number of years, right? And it's oftentimes been described um, in political and religious terms. But, you know, there is some evidence to suggest that part of the underlying dynamic that helped create the situation in which that conflict erupted, leading to civil war and um, arguably genocide against the Yazidi uh, population. Um, that at its at the beginning, um, there was this drought between I think it was something like 2006, 2009, that severely impacted large portions of Syria, and helped set the stage um, for a lot of discontent, social unrest that the state was not able to handle well. And when Arab Spring comes through the region, um, you had a, a lot of people. Um, willing to embrace um, change um, and that helped bring about um, the conflict that lasted um, for quite a long time. Right. Yeah. And do you, do you think conflict like that can happen here? I, I, I asked this in, a, you know, Alex Hinton has a book coming out uh, next year called It Can Happen Here, uh, White Power and the Rising Threat of Genocide in the U.S., which, you know, it's a slightly different thing. But if we think about the, you know, the othering and the dehumanization and other things that come with uh, conflict, um, maybe exacerbated by um, climate change related um, issues, do you, do you think that kind of violence can happen here? Well, in the um, United States, that is, <laughs> you know, that's a tough question. Um, and, um, you know, I'm not one to predict the future, like, uh, absolutely. But what I can say is that there's no um, society that is immune to um, such violence. That is something you always have to guard against. You know, when we look at how genocides have developed in the past, what we find are that there is um, increased polarization in that society, population or groups within that society that... Um, embrace radical um, notions of identity, of purity. Um, uh, so, uh, yeah, if you, whether or not that could happen here in the United States, um, you know, time will tell. Um, 
I don't think that we are immune to it. I think we have seen in the last um, years not only a rise in white supremacy, um, as documented by a variety of groups, like a dramatic rise, but we've seen old kind of um, in, uh, intolerance resurrected. We have seen um, things like anti-Semitism, um, as documented by the ADL, um, seen a huge spike um, from 2016 to 17, 17 to 18. Um, you know, when people are scared, when people are anxious, when people feel threatened, it's very easy to scapegoat different populations, different groups that you see as being different, that you see as a threat, um, that can provide a focal point um, for your anger. And, and so, you know, for me, I, I, you could tell me whether or not this makes sense, but I often think about this in terms of fire in the West, where you know, we, um, I have some friends who've worked on some of the fire lines. And one of the things that I was told is that, you know, fighting the fires up in the treetops and out in the open is relatively straightforward. But one of the real dangers is when fire migrates underground in kind of the detritus, the duff on the forest floor, where it just smolders undetected for a long time. And then given the right conditions, drier temperature, higher winds, it can burst back into flame again. And it feels to me that's kind of what we've experienced in this country in regards to prejudice and intolerance around race and ethnic identity and these kind of things. Um, that we thought we had made such great progress and such great strides in eliminating some of these um, biases, this kind of prejudice, but that what we've seen um, in recent years is a resurgence in it. It's burst back into flame again. Whether or not that can develop into more um, extreme solutions such as genocide, um, you know, I, you know the uh, the pessimist in me says absolutely it's a possibility. The optimist in me says you know we've um, just come through an election that has really tested some of these democratic processes and traditions, and um, they've been bent, but they haven't broken, right? So. Uh, I don't know. You know, I, I think it's a possibility. I'm not, I don't think necessarily that it's very likely. Maybe that might be a way to frame this. Yeah, definitely. And it, your comparison, I think definitely makes sense there. Um, this idea that it's, it's been there all the time, but it emerges seemingly suddenly. Uh, and so then it seems like it came out of nowhere, but it's been sort of simmering beneath the surface uh, for, for some time. Um yeah, people did and, not suddenly you know, become prejudiced or racist or anti-Semitic um, in the last couple of years, but that they, um, uh, but that the conditions were ripe again for a variety of reasons for it to come forth again. That's right. That's right. And um, you know, some other things that you mentioned uh, in your answer to the last question also uh, relates to something you talked about uh, in terms of. Um, High stress crises and um, and decision making, and so I just want to read uh, another brief uh, excerpt from your from your text. Um, you know, it was published again in 2017, and at the end of your chapter on linking climate change and conflict, you write that quote: "During times of high stress and crisis, such as those brought about by the projected impacts of climate change, leaders and other decision makers can suffer from impaired decision making processes, and such a deterioration may facilitate the development of violent solutions targeting vulnerable populations." And uh, you also mentioned, you know, the pandemic. And um, now that we have been living under a pandemic for as long as we have, uh, how might this high stress crisis uh, intersect with climate change impacts when it comes to uh, decision makers and decision making? Well, uh, you know, I, I think whether we're talking about political leaders or social leaders or other kinds of, um, or just ordinary folks, you know, stress um, is something that, you know, um, is very hard um, for people to deal with sometimes, especially if there are no easy answers, no, no solutions that present themselves. And when people are stressed, when people feel threatened, when they're scared, they oftentimes um, resort back to certain kinds of fixed mindsets. Um, you develop tunnel vision. It's hard to be creative, perhaps, um, for many individuals. And that's true for political um, social leaders, no less than um, private citizens. And so I think what we've seen 
in many ways, it is a, a variety of responses, let's say, in the United States around this pandemic um, that is in part shaped by the stress and strain of this, um, this fast moving pandemic that I think overwhelmed the ability of some people to cope and adapt and deal with it. I think some of those responses were also shaped in part by you know, ideology, politics, belief, etc. Um, and so we've seen a real variety of uh, responses, some more effective than others. Um, there's also a tendency to want to, um, to blame, right? To find uh, a focal point for our fears and our anger and, and our resentment. It's hard to get angry at some impersonal virus, but if we can focus the blame on some group or on some nation or something like this, that's something that um, it resonates emotionally. Um, we've also seen, for example, around the world, a number of nations have used the pandemic as an excuse uh, um, to restrict civil liberties, to um, heighten certain kinds of authoritarian traditions um, and practices. You know, think about some of what's going on um, in Hungary, for example, um, where um, the government has used this pandemic as a means to tighten its control, right? Um, these are all, um, I think, illustrative of some of the processes that we may well see um, develop uh, increasingly in the coming years. And did you see any uh, totalitarian, I mean, this is something, especially if you pay attention to social media, which isn't always the best idea, but um, have you seen similar totalitarian or um, authoritarian tendencies in, in the United States or? Um, oh, yeah, absolutely. Sorry. Oh, yeah. Yeah. If you're following politics at all, um, you've seen some of the traditions that have been broken um, some of the ways in which um, attempts have been made to restrict, um, uh, I don't know, some of the kinds of protections that um, or institutions that we have um, long enjoyed in this country. Uh, but as I said, you know, I, I think as we're coming out of this um, election season, you know, it feels as if that um, battered, um, bent but that, you know, that some of these processes, um, some of these democratic things we've um, enjoyed for a long time in this country have endured. Um, you know, there are some deeper trends, some long-term um, problems, I think, that we still need to deal with, um, at, uh, you know, going forward. It's going to be, a, uh, um, there are going to be a lot of challenges in the coming years, let me put it that way. Um, but actually, I, I would highlight that what we're experiencing here in the United States is not unique. You know, we've seen um, a rollback in democracy and democratic traditions and processes and policies for years now around the world. Um, we have seen a rise in authoritarianism um, in many places. Um, and so, you know, what the future looks like, um, I don't know, but that does not bode well for dealing with um, some of the challenges that are um coming down the road. Uh, as we approach the end of our conversation, I want to come back to a question you posed in your introduction. How will humanity cope and adapt to the new climate realities of this time? I'm sorry, this time around. Uh, do you find reason for optimism based on um, your understanding of the current trajectory and, and the response we're taking? Yeah, yes. Although this might surprise me. Um, people who know me, um, my wife, for example, and others would never characterize me as an optimist. Um, quite the reverse. Um, but I, I do find that there's reason to hope. A and I, I don't think all is lost. Um, and the reason for that is that, you know, um, one, it feels like um, people are waking up. And what I mean by that is when I first began giving talks um, based on my book a number of years ago, it was really hard for many people to see the connection, to understand what I was talking about. It felt very speculative, very future oriented. And what I found increasingly, um, whether I'm talking in California or in uh, New Jersey or, uh, you know, places um, 
in, uh, around the world, that people are getting it. People are waking up. As I had indicated earlier in our conversation, it feels like there's been a sea change in terms of people's awareness. Um, that That is giving me um, reason to hope. Um, I also think about, you know, Greta Thunberg, right? Um, this young Swedish activist who has made a huge impact around the world in getting young people to um, take notice, to push um, their parents, their leadership, uh, their communities to begin to take this seriously. And, and, you know, that gives me um, hope. What I've also seen is um, during this pandemic, communities have come together. Sure, there's been a lot of difference. There's been a lot of conflict, you know, around issues of mask wearing, not mask wearing, these kind of things. But I've also seen a lot of support. I've seen, uh, you know, people rally together, people help each other out, people doing the kind of things that, um, you know, speak to the best uh, in us. And um, it reminds me that, you know, during times of crisis, during difficult times, communities don't always fragment, communities don't always scapegoat, but that sometimes um, people come together, people rally uh, to support each other. Um, differences that once seemed very, um, you know, major suddenly seem a little less significant um, as people recognize their shared values, their shared humanity in the face of crisis. And all of these things, I guess, um, together um, lead me to believe that there's still hope, that, you know, there are still things that we can do. Um, we are, as a species, remarkably resilient and creative and adaptive. And so, yeah, I do think that there's hope. I do think we need to get moving on some of this. I do think that there are a lot of challenges, but that, you know, all is not lost, that there are things we can and should do and are beginning to do. Thank you, Alex. That's a, a great note to end on. Um, realistic, but also uh, optimistic and and with some hope there. So thank you. And uh, thank you for your, your thank you. Thank you for your excellent book. Um, I, uh, I hope more people read it and, and listen to, to this podcast episode. And um, you know, before we let you go, uh, is there anything new that you're working on that uh, we should keep our eye out for? Nothing that immediate, um, nothing along those lines um, for sure. But um, stay tuned. Hopefully down the road, I'll have a few more things um, out there. But thank you. Great. Thank you, Alex. And uh, thanks again for your time. Um, and uh, I, yeah, I really um, appreciate it. And I, I really enjoyed our conversation. Same here. I appreciated talking with you, Jeff.